Hello and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good. Cliché. Romantic. Questionable. Hilarious. Occasionally humorous. Films she's never wanted to watch. But Chelsea, you did want to watch this one. Oh yeah. Rain, shine, in a box with a fox, here in this mortal plane, or if ever I find a magical realm, I assume they have movie nights, I will be watching this. That's all I'm saying. Chelsea, I think in like a magical realm though, this movie would be a documentary. Um, I don't Mm. know if you want that on your movie night. Well, I like documentaries, you know, they're very soothing, you learn things. Oh, yeah. I have fallen asleep many times to Planet Earth documentaries. The ocean ones in particular, the deep ocean ones with all the spooky, scary fish, love to fall asleep to those. Especially if they're narrated by the greats, like Sir David Attenborough or Sir Ian McKellen. Gotta love the greats. Mm -hmm. Did you purposely pick Sir Ian McKellen or was that a coincidence? Because, you know, he does narrate this. It was intentional. Wait, Sir Ian McKillen narrates this? Chelsea, who the fuck was that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> did you did you not pay our security bill again? I thought it was weird when I saw our security guy, Mike, uh, with the Writers Guild of America strike, but not like holding a strike sign, but it didn't have anything to do with the Writers Guild. I thought that was kind of weird. So is is that why I hear a, a random voice in the studio today? Look, look, look. I got to pick between the electricity so we could keep editing episodes for the Lasters or security. And honestly, I was just really hoping I picked correctly. Well, I mean, your form of security was just a sign that said, please go away. And, <laughs> you know, as your sister... I've been ignoring you for the past, you know, that your requests, not ignoring you, but ignoring your requests since, you know, for the past 26 years. So, and she'll do it for the next 26 or more. <laughs> and that is a threat. And that is a promise. <laughs> I don't know. It feels really threatening, <laughs> but it's a threat made with love. <laughs> is that, is that the definition of a promise? A threat made with love? <laughs> Maybe. That is so merchable. A promise. A threat made with love. Coming to our store. <laughs> In 2025. Everything's 2025. Yeah, well, it used to be 2024, but that's too close now. So yeah, we, we can't, we can't deliver that in six months. 2025, that's not a real year. No, it's not. It doesn't feel like it is. But it's two years away. Oh, my God. I Yeah, I went to a concert actually last night. And uh, let me tell you something. There was this kid who was standing next to me. He was tall as shit, like illegally tall. But he was like, yeah, I just graduated in like 2019. And I'm like, oh, from college? And he's like from high school. And I was like, that's illegal. How are you here? This is an 18 and up event. It's actually not, but I was like, people are drinking. This is an unsafe environment. Well, to quote Smash Mouth, the years start coming and they don't stop coming and they don't stop coming. (laughs) The Shrek soundtrack, it is elite. 
It is unmatched to this day. Just throwing that out there. I really wonder how Smash Mouth feels with someone like just identifying them via Shrek and not by their They should band. feel honored. Shrek is a cinematic masterpiece. Oh my god. Wasn't Smash Mouth like didn't they throw a massive concert in the middle of COVID just to be like, fuck your laws or whatever? Was that not Smash Mouth? And like so many people got super sick. I don't I really know. hope it wasn't Smash Mouth, but to be honest, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Someone write in and tell me everything bad that Smash Mouth has ever done. Uh, that would be great. <laughs> Honestly, Shrek is a great movie just in general. And I mentioned this podcast on our previous episode when we talked about Jennifer's Body. But the Queer Movie Podcast, in between talking about movies, they have these episodes called Hot Takes. And they'll just be like, what are your hottest takes about LGBTQ plus cinema? And they had on, I can't remember her name, but she does a lot of lesbian fashion historian content. And she's got pink hair uh, on TikTok, but she was the guest. And one of her hot takes was that Shrek is a lesbian love story. And... (laughs) And here's the thing, that sounds wild, but she sat there and explained it. And I was like, oh my god, Shrek is the gayest movie of all time. Here's the thing, though. You said that, and I was like, honestly, that doesn't sound that off. Like, I mean, what lesbian doesn't relate to Shrek? Well, they also pointed out that it's one of the few, and honestly, I can't think of another one, where the princess the whole time wants to be like turned back into the beautiful woman. But at the end, that story resists that plot. And instead, she just turns into an ogre because her true love is Shrek. Think about how radical that is for, especially for a kid's movie where everything is supposed to like turn out. So there was a version of that story in which they just made Shrek human. And I know that that's what the sequel tries to do. But like that was kind of her point about it being a very queer movie was it was like you are trying to conform but you just get to live your best life at the end and like that doesn't have to look like other people's lives like you don't have to conform to heteronormativity it's also a very body positive story yeah there's Mm -hmm. so much about it look shrek slaps that's the moral of the story however shrek 2 is superior to the first one because Jennifer Saunders put her whole just like Saunders she put yes <laughs> she put everything into that performance of holding out for a hero and I think uh, where would we be without Jennifer Saunders as the fairy godmother well I think if we didn't have that version Marissa we would just be stuck with the is it Bonnie Tyler that does yes it's a bonnie tyler song yeah pretty sure that one is written also by jim steinem only reason i know that is because it sounds exactly like him he wrote a lot of stuff with meatloaf like the bat out of hell album was him but if you've ever seen the iconic movie streets of fire with diane lane he wrote that soundtrack and i just I need more people to watch Streets of Fire. So this is me telling you to watch it. Do I think you'll enjoy it? No, but I want you to watch it so I can talk to you about it. 
I'll put it on the list of things I might watch. <gasps> Chelsea, maybe I'll make you watch it next time. Like next season. I'll add it to our list. <laughs> the fear that just crossed Chelsea's face. Because, Marissa, if it hasn't been obvious up until this point to both you and the other Lapsters, she has made me watch a number of if I'm being generous, questionable content, and if I'm being <laughs> honest, reprehensible media. <laughs> so I I just, anytime she gets that little glint in her eye, I feel an overwhelming sense of dread. Even my mom says the same thing. She's like, every time you look excited, I get nervous. Oh my God. Well, Chelsea, we did watch something today that you didn't, you didn't have any qualms with. Is it because I didn't pick it? Maybe. Would I have picked it? Absolutely. I love this movie. It's a great movie. Uh, and we are breaking the rules a bit here because to be truthful with everyone, I don't think we could have found someone that hadn't seen this movie. It's illegal to not have seen this movie. Yeah. So instead, we're bringing together three, dare I say it, super fans to just jump into this movie that may or may not be a rom-com though if people recall from the retrospective we had a very passionate laughster that didn't even write in spoken recorded themselves with their hot take about how this is 100% a rom-com and so here we are to deliver our episode on the 2007 film Stardust Woo! so good you know, Chelsea, I have to say that this movie, watching it back again, I was like, holy shit, at the star-studded cast that this movie has. And I feel like had no right to have such a superior cast. And I, part of it is that the people who are in it who are truly superior now may not have been as big at that point. Um, but some of them were. So I'm just going to do a roll call, if you will. We have Charlie Cox as Tristan Thorne. As we've stated before, uh, he plays Daredevil. Yeah, Chelsea. We have Claire Danes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, wait. Marissa, you haven't heard the Jennifer's Body episode, but I do say what his actual name is in that episode. Okay, but you did it twice. And each time I was just like, it's Charlie Cox, Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, she did. I get a mysterious text from her completely out of context. It's just like, it's Charlie Cox. And I'm like, what's Charlie Cox? I don't understand. And I'm just like, oh the guy God. from Stardust is Charlie Cox. And she's like, oh, Oops. okay. Yeah, well, you know, here, here's the thing. We recorded Jennifer's Body after you texted me very angrily about that. But the other two episodes back to back we had recorded and I just didn't know it either time. Yeah. I, I, this is my formal apology to Charlie Cox for not remembering your name and, you know, having to keep referring to you as uh, Matt Murdock. Well, you know, he is an avid listener, so I'm sure yeah, he, I know he's he appreciates so your apology, though. Well, he's not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to keep him humble, Marissa. Why, why, why has he got to be humble? Look, that man can humble me any day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but. Uh, this movie is not all about Charlie Cox. There are other people. We've got Claire Danes as Evane. 
Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as Lamia, the Ugh, one of the Pfeiffer. three witches who is pretty much the main witch in the film. Uh, Robert De Niro plays Captain Shakespeare. We have Peter O'Toole who plays the king. Mark Strong who plays Septimus. Who else am I forgetting? You're not even hitting two of like the hottest main guy. You have Ben Barnes playing a young Dustin Thorne. Mm-hmm. Or Dunstan oh, Thorne. Oh. And then a cameo that nobody <laughs> remembers is to him because he looks so different. Yes. We have a cameo from Henry Cavill. Yeah. Who plays Humphrey. It's before he beefed up. Like, <laughs> yeah. So also, but he's also like strawberry blonde and has a must. He's got facial hair. Like he does not look like the Henry Cavill everybody it's, knows and no. drools over today. I'm going to put a picture on our it's, on our Instagram. <laughs> it's Henry Cavill, but like Victorian dandy Henry Cavill. <laughs> That's yeah. so cursed. It's just like, name all of the hot actors that you don't want to look like a Victorian dandy. I'll go first. Henry Cavill. <laughs> it's funny, though, because like watching it, I'm like, I don't even like see it. Like... <laughs> Like it I just, know it's it him, doesn't register. but it just doesn't re- it doesn't resemble him. And Mm-mm. honestly, you can tell me that every time I watch the movie, and it surprises me every time. This is a fact I've known for a very long time. Still blows my mind. It's funny because oh, yeah. you know, like he's in the Enola Holmes movies on Netflix, and he's in a similar attire. He just doesn't have like the dorky mustache, and he's a brunette now. But it's it's just so weird because like it's the sa- it's essentially the same time period. But like I'm like when I look at when I'm watching Enola Holmes, I'm like, yeah, that's Henry Cavill. But then when I'm watching mm-hmm. Stardust, I'm like a Stardust. I'm like, it's a Victorian dandy of no name. <laughs> it's it's the hair and the mustache. That's real. Uh, also, he's not like you know bulked up. He doesn't look like he you know eats cows while they're still mooing for the protein. But <laughs> that's that's such a weird visual i'm not sorry uh (laughs) it is though um but yeah no i just i just had to point out at the top this is such a star-studded cast for what is honestly a really great story i'm gonna go ahead and say that i have never uh this is based off a neil gaiman story never read it i guess i don't know how to read well you know what i found out like probably 30 minutes before we started recording is that it wasn't a novel first. It was a a short, limited graphic novel. And then when I think they wanted to adapt it for screen, they took the graphic novel and transformed it into a long-form novel. But it's really interesting because I have not read the book in its entirety. I've tried to start reading it several times, but I think I hit the block, which a lot of people probably hit, which is that the book and the movie are different tonally. The book is a Mm. lot darker. They made the film more like humorous and whimsical than than the novel is in fact in something that neil gaiman was saying is that they you know obviously had to shorten it the audiobook is like over 10 hours long right jesus christ it's a it's a long novel and neil gaiman was saying that they basically had to get tristan to the star like so quick because Mm -hmm originally he doesn't get the candle from his mom he gets it from i think 
people in the fort like he go he leaves the wall he meets some vampires he goes through the woods like there's all like basically all of that if they had done it that way would have taken up an hour of screen time and so they just you know they had to take a shortcut the ending is different but my one friend who has read the novel is like the film's better (laughs) i think they're just different and i think that's okay and i think you know there's a conversation we could have about what makes a successful adaptation i think ultimately it's just capturing the spirit in fact i think most like faithful quote-unquote faithful adaptations the ones where they try to do it word for word scene for scene i think those are the most unsuccessful because the pacing is weird film and literature are two very different storytelling mediums they function differently and you need different things out of them to tell even the same story anyway there's a little fun facts for you about this story i'm just reeling over the fact that there's vampires in the book apparently because you know like this movie came out the year before the twilight movies started and so now I'm just ra- imagining like Robert Pattinson's Edward being oh, in God, this no. movie. That is such a cursed image. But why does it also work? This is the skin of a killer, Bella. Oh my God. <laughs> or wait, no. Well, let's change it. This is the skin of a killer, Tristan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it works. Not really. <laughs> oh my God. For anyone who didn't watch the movie... Why um, not? Incorrect. But if you, you've you seen the movie, but it's been a while, let, allow me to refresh your memory. So this is the story about Tristan. But we have to start with Tristan's father, who, as a young man, sneaks out of this village called Wall, which is the unmagical part of England. He goes through the hole in the wall. He goes to this market, and he meets this beautiful woman who is, as it turns out, a princess that's been enslaved by a witch. And they fall in love. So after one magical night out, Dustin returns home. And nine months later, a package in the form of a baby is left at the wall for him. So Dustin raises Tristan in the town of Wall. And Tristan is your typical, like, awkward guy, very kind, bumbling, but, like, not super attractive personality-wise to the ladies who are very posh. But he's in love with this girl named Victoria. Victoria wants to marry Humphrey, a.k.a. Henry Cavill. And one night they sneak out and they're having champagne. And Victoria says to Tristan when they see a falling star that if he will go cross the wall and get her this star that she will be with him. That was the big grand romantic gesture that she needs from him to prove his love. Meanwhile, in the city of Stormhold, which is across the wall in the magical realm, the king is dying and he's very disappointed in his four living sons. There was a total of seven. Three of them are dead. He's very disappointed in the four living ones for not killing each other so that they can pick the next heir of Stormhold. So he decides to take this necklace off of his neck. He drains the color from the ruby. He throws it out into the sky and basically tells his kids that you know, you got to go get this and whoever restores the color, they get to be the king. Well, the necklace goes into the sky and knocks a star out of the sky. A witch sees the star is falling and is like, ah, I'm an old haggard lady and we eat the hearts of stars (laughs) in order to stay young and youthful. So she now has to set off to find this star because it's been 400 years since the last one has fallen. Back in Wall, Tristan goes home 
his father shows him the basket that he came in and he has this letter from his mother that's wrapped around this black candle and you know she tells him who she is and she tells him the fastest way to travel is by candlelight so he lights the candle he thinks of her and boom he lands right in the crater with the star because of course he got distracted by his needing to prove his love for victoria so he ended up with the star who appears to be a woman and not a lump of rock as Tristan thought. And so now he's got to take her all the way back to Wall in order to present her in time for Victoria's birthday. Amidst all of this, we've got princes looking for the rock that Yvaine is uh, the star is now wearing. It's very perilous, very dangerous. The witch is trying to get to them. And as they're trying to get away from a witch, they get captured. Uh, they end up in the sky with some lightning thief pirates of which Ca uh, Robert De Niro is Captain Shakespeare. Uh, and then they eventually journey back they almost get to wall they realize that they're in love with each other tristan tries to sneak out in the morning to say to victoria so sorry but here's a piece of the star he cut off a piece of Yvain's hair he's gonna give that to say like this is a piece but i'm actually in love with her you have a fun time with humphrey but when he arrives and he gives this to her he basically tells her i'm not in love with you she opens up this little parcel that's supposed to have Yvain's hair in it and it's just a bunch of stardust and Tristan realizes in a very dramatic moment that he cannot. This is too long of a recap. <laughs> no, keep I'm going. <laughs> okay, he realizes that Yvain cannot cross the wall because he lives in the non-magical part of England and she is a magical being. So she will turn into rock if she crosses the wall. So he's racing down. Well, unfortunately, he would have not gotten there in time, but it's fine because his mom, who's in the caravan with the other witch, she steals the caravan to go and stop Yvain because Yvain very sadly is just walking towards doom, not realizing it, but she's heartbroken and gets there right in time for Michelle Pfeiffer, a.k.a. Lamia the witch, who's been after her the whole time to get there they kill the one witch she takes them off to her compound with her sisters where they're going to cut out Yvain's heart Tristan runs off that way he meets up with Prince Septimus who at this point is the only prince that's still alive and then at the witch's compound basically everyone except for Una Tristan's mother Tristan and uh, Yvain die so those are the only three people left standing he ends up touching the ruby and it turns red because he is the son of the princess of Stormhold and so he becomes king and they get married and live happily ever after and after their children and grandchildren are grown they light the Babylon candle that his mother gave them uh, at his coronation and they go up and into the heavens and they get to be stars together and and that's stardust <laughs> i love that so much and i want to point out that this movie you said earlier you know very much has this funny silly dramatic at times um but never really super heavy or super dark tone but so much of what you just said, once you remove it from that, you know, more jovial context is like, man wants woman. Woman doesn't want man, sends man on impossible task to fetch star. Man realizes that star is person, enslaves person to bring to potential future betrothed. All the while, brothers are killing each other to ascend to a throne. And also the kidnapped star falls in love with her kidnapper and witches want to eat her heart for a youthful glow. Like all of that sounds so scary. 
Well, okay, right? But like I said, the novel apparently is a lot darker in tone and they made yeah. it so, you know, in the with the film, they were able to make it more humorous and whatever, but I'm just so impressed that they managed to do that. Yeah, I haven't read the novel, so I'm not sure about exact comparisons. That The thing I said earlier was just something I read in an interview that Neil Gaiman was talking about how things that had to be changed. So that is Stardust. It's fantastic, and I highly recommend that people watch it. I know that was a great recap, but... <laughs> so another thing that I want to point out, too, is that it was an amazing recap, <laughs> is that this movie is two hours and seven minutes long. And it has such a multi-layered plot to it and so many asides because you you have these two parallel plots that are the main plots, but then you also add a third because why not? But then you also have to add a fourth and fifth because why not? Because you have the first two layers of I want the star for my betrothed on Tristan's side and I want the kingdom. I'm going to kill my brothers from the remaining four brothers. And then you break that down into Tristan. I'm going to find my enslaved mom as well. I found the star and she's a person question mark. And then over here you have also here's some witches that want to eat the star. And then all of them converge together. Oh, and by the way, there are lightning pirates who also do drag. Like, how do you fit all of this so well in a two hour movie? This movie makes my ADHD brain very happy. <laughs> like, it just makes sense. There's so much going on. And it just all seamlessly comes together. And I'm just like, I wish my brain could seamlessly come together. But it does not. Again, haven't read the novel or apparently the, the graphic series that was how it originated though I am very interested to get my hands on that but I think that in a adventure story right there's a lot of ups and downs I watched a TikTok recently the author Brandon Sanderson was talking about film adaptations actually and one of the things he was talking about is the differences in structure of storytelling and so he was saying that you know in a film because it's a, a shorter storytelling medium but you have a lot of visual things that you're working with the the narrative piece of it is tends to be like that three act structure right mm -hmm. that we're we're very comfortable and used to with a film but in a novel you almost have a bunch of these structures miniaturized mm -hmm. and so a lot of times especially in like long like high fantasy novels where it's you know going on for like especially long amounts of time it's kind of like you have the build-up the climax the resolution of like one piece of the puzzle and then these kind of stack on top of each other to make one overarching plot for that novel right and so I have to think that obviously it's very complex to adapt anything to a different storytelling medium because there's challenges there but I have to think that part of what makes this so successful is that I don't think it got bogged down in the details. And instead, we get a lot of these really satisfying montages of these mm -hmm. beautiful landscapes in the Scottish Highlands that are just so gosh darn gorgeous. There's also a scene uh, that they filmed in Iceland the where Septimus is on the beach and he 
kills the soothsayer that with those mm-hmm. ice rock things it's like gorgeous whoever did the scouting the location management team for this film was 10 out of 10 great job everyone anywho i have to think that like those montages they're very satisfying also paired with a score this is one of the few films for me personally that like every time i watch this movie i like feel things with the music mm-hmm. some other examples ever after oh, great score yeah. the 2003 peter pan which marissa is emphatically agreeing with me in hand gestures on the screen <laughs> that score makes me feel things that i i can't even begin to express the yeah. joy that i feel and the like I that score brings tears to my eyes every time I watch that movie. It's one of the best Peter Pan adaptions. Like it solely just for the score. Like they they understood the assignment. And <laughs> yeah, I am truly appreciative of the hard work that went into that film. But yeah, so th- this film has a a phenomenal score. And so when you have that over top of these beautiful landscapes and in very small ways, just showing how each of these people are struggling to figure out like where they need to be going, right? Because the princes are after, and for most of the film, you're with Septimus and Primus because those are the two that are left standing for the longest time. They're both looking for the stone. The stone is around Evane's neck. Lamia is looking for Evane, doesn't give a shit about the stone. And Tristan is looking for the star and his mother, like, right? Like, and so all of these things converge, right? Because if the if the king had thrown the stone, the star wouldn't have fallen out of the sky. Like none of them would be here. So it's like a bunch of things that just converge and it just feels so satisfying to see them all come together. No notes. notes. (laughs) And I guess what's also getting me with all of this, because I mean, like you said, so you have an incredible, I mean like truly remarkable film score to go along with this beautiful scenery with this star-studded cast with this wholeness plot that converges in so many ways because it's so multi-dimensional do you know the budget for this film uh i think it was like 70 or 80 million yeah 70 million dollars that is crazy when you compare it to like what would be considered like a low level or a low budget like marvel movie for instance because i think the lowest marvel budget that you'll see is probably around like 150 so this had half the budget and was twice as good as well the average marvel movie I have to win it right. So this is 07. So we're 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 definitely in an era where we we have better special effects, right? But mm-hmm. it's still like in comparison to from this to like if you go forward 10 years and they've CGI'd a whole ass tiger that looks completely real. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't know if it's but approximately 10 years, right? Like that's the difference, right? In in terms of what we are able to create. And yet I think I think the thing that we don't often give older films credit for is working to their strengths Mm -hmm. in what they are going to show you on screen and 
making like cutting their losses where it's like this is not something that we can bring to the screen in this way and they get really creative it's funny you brought up the the wga strike earlier mm-hmm. and i was listening to a podcast in which they were talking up uh, it was uh they were talking to a puppeteer and this guy was talking about practical effects in hollywood and how Practical effects, um, those uh, artisans have unionized, but do you know who's not under a union? Special effects. That's all contract work, which is why we, that's what we use because practical effects, like it takes years to learn how to do certain things, mastery, things like that. And I was like, oh my God, like that's why everything is special effects now. It's all because of capitalism. (laughs) So what I'm hearing is solidarity forever because the unions make us strong. Exactly. Yes. So, so yeah. So I think like, right, you look back at this film, 2007. Sure, we have special effects. There's clearly special effects used in this film. But I also think you see a lot of things where I think that it was just very creatively produced and different cam- camera angles and things like that so that they didn't rely completely on CGI to create this world. Right. Mm-hmm. There's so many different pieces that go into like making you feel immersed into this magical fantasy realm. And I think this film just really did it justice. And the reason, like, especially now, right? I saw this film in the theater when it came out in 2007 and obviously blown away, loved it, wanted to watch it again right then and there. But here we are, like, I can't do math, but. 15 15 thank you marissa (laughs) 15 years later and i like i there's no special effects that are like clunky that you like it takes you out of the moment Mm -hmm. yeah i'm not saying they're like perfect and i'm not saying that they couldn't be done even more seamless and better now but i'm i'm not i don't feel like i'm wanting you know Mm -hmm. and i think that that's a real it really speaks to the creators of this film that they were able to create that at the time and here we are 15 years later with special effects that are leaps and bounds ahead of what they had at their disposal at this time not to mention budgetary constraints because this wasn't Mm -hmm. like a blockbuster you know budget film and here we are and i'm like not upset about the special effects Well, I think the other big part of that is this movie does something in a very excellent way where it trusts the audience to understand where things are going. So it doesn't need to handhold you. It doesn't need excess show of, you know, special effects and stuff like that because it just trusts that you're getting what they're putting down already you can build the rest out that they haven't put on screen in your mind. You can put those pieces together. And I think being able to trust the audience like that is actually knowing how strong your writing team is, that they are so in tune with your audience that they know what they can leave on the cutting room floor because they're like, they will get this. And I think that comes from essentially them being the audience themselves. I mean, obviously Neil Gaiman was part of the screenplay production of it. He was one of the, there was a team of like three main identified writers on this film. I think that's something special that 
can come from adapting something pre-existing if you are the audience for that yourself when you are trying to adapt it. So I feel like this shows how much the writers love the content. To shout out the writers, because uh, they do so much heavy lifting on these projects. Um, the director, Matthew Vaughn, was one of two writers and uh, his partner, Jane Goldman. And they worked on a lot of things together. People will recognize from like Kick-Ass. I think that's 2011, 2012. That's mm -hmm. a big film. They did X-Men First Class, I believe. Oh, they also did the Kingsman mm. series, all three films. Uh, the oh, wow. two and then the prequel. Yeah, both of them. So they've worked together a lot. And I believe I saw earlier that Jane Goldman looks like she's attached to the new Little Mermaid, uh, the live action. Oh, cool. Uh, she also happened to write a movie that gave me nightmares. And the reason I still can't sleep in complete darkness, the woman in black. So, you know, <laughs> great job for terrifying me. I thought you couldn't sleep in pitch black because of that one episode of Scooby-Doo. No, that's just, there's a specific laugh that terrifies her, and I've been banned mm. from doing it because I can do it, like, spot on. Gotcha, okay. I do respect that she does not like to hear that laugh because it gives her the heebie-jeebies. Maybe a little that's more a than the heebie-jeebies. Be that's just being mean. Like, you tell me to go away, I won't go away. But you tell me not to do a creepy laugh, I won't do a creepy laugh. Like, that's just being respectful. She mm -hmm. has some boundaries. I do. You love to see it. That's so healthy. Uh <laughs> so but back back to your point, Madison. I think clearly these are people that are writing in a particular genre. I'm not saying they never step outside of it, but like it the impression I get looking at their body of work is that this is content, these are stories that they are interested in, and probably why they are successful in telling those stories. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you get the best content from seasoned writers. And to create seasoned writers, you have to have junior writers who are paid in a way that it they get a livable wage to become really good seasoned writers to make excellent content for people like us to enjoy and discuss. For, for context, because this episode's not going to come out until like the middle of the of July. Um, we're recording this on May 8th. So the WGA has been striking for a week now. So uh, I, should we predict uh, if the studios are going to give into their demands by the oh time this episode airs? Thank you so much, Chelsea. I've been waiting for you to ask this question. Um, are you asking me if corporations are going to do the right thing and allow workers more rights? you know, to their work and also allow them more benefits to the services that they provide to millions of people? No. <laughs> Short answer, absolutely not. Yeah, the, the strike, actually, you know, it's so strange, right? This movie came out 15 years ago. That's the last time that writers struck, mm -hmm. striked, were on strike. I don't know how to say that in the past tense. Anywho, they were struck. You know what you mean. <laughs> And I believe that strike lasted for 100 days. So if it lasts the same amount of time, I don't think we'll be done. They'll be done yet. Ugh. And if it lasts even longer, I think the one in the 80s lasted, I don't know, 150 something. I don't know. It's a, it was a long. It was longer. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I want them to get what they want. 
They're mm-hmm. asking for things that are very reasonable. Studios are just greedy. I mean, honestly, I think most people who strike are asking for reasonable things, but, you know, capitalism. Oh, like the railroad strikers earlier this year who were like, we want some sick leave and maybe pay. I was also thinking about, uh, didn't like teachers go on strike like a couple years ago or something? I know there was a teacher strike recently. Teachers are the unsung heroes. They are braver than any U.S. Marine. Well, they're taking as many bullets. Sorry, that was in poor taste, but very true. It it's it's facts though, not just saying. Yeah, and they don't yeah. get any training. <laughs> well, I think part of that is honestly the reason why a lot of states do not allow teachers to unionize. The state that I am in, really, like in a genuine collective bargaining sense, uh, teachers do not have that authority, and they should. They absolutely should because it is insane that we are asking these people to not only provide education but also be social workers and sometimes you know second parents or first parents depending on a situation and now i'm just quoting abbott elementary (laughs) but do you know who is out there striking quinta brunson but so many of the cast of abbott elementary is like in support of the strike if they're not like out there on like on the like on the picket lines with everyone there they have like voiced their support mm-hmm. you have pete davidson out there giving writers pizza because you know that man ain't gonna be funny without them writers <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so you lobsters listening to this in the middle of summer uh we'll see if the strike is still happening I'm not optimistic that it'll be over. I, I think it will still be going. I'm yeah. Uh, I think it will. Oh my still god! Be going. Should we take bets? <laughs> <laughs> All right, lobsters. Here's the thing: if the strike is still going by the time that this episode comes out, midsummer, this is what we're gonna do. DM us the date that you think the strike will finally end because hopefully you know demands will have been met at that point we'll create a calendar like a betting calendar and whoever gets it will get the full pot it'll be 50 cents to everyone everyone will pitch in 50 cents so that person can buy a pack of gum whoever wins do you think that'll be enough for a pack of gum i think if everyone chips in we might get like ten dollars (laughs) so so it'll be like cheap not name brand gum well hopefully you know gum doesn't go up in price like eggs did you don't even know tridents out here with massive inflation (laughs) god damn it orbit um please sponsor us (laughs) um speaking of orbiting yeah (laughs) i was about to say i was trying so hard to go okay how do we spin this back how do we call back? Um, so, Chelsea, do you have a favorite part? And Marissa, do you have a favorite part of this movie? Even just a favorite element? It's so hard. I mean, honestly, a favorite element, uh, hands down, it's the score. I think it's brilliant. And I like it, the way it, like, I feel very moved every time I hear it. And I can hear it back to back if I watch this back to back, you know. Mm-hmm. finished started over feel the same way i think it's so powerful um it's gorgeous as for very favorite part of the film 
No, you know what? Okay, my favorite part of the film is the pause in the music when Victoria throws him back the handkerchief and he goes, a vein, and then it, everything goes silent. She can't cross the wall. And then it goes, dun, 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 and he's running. <laughs> that is like, oh, the tension in the silence is, oh, it's so good. Can I just say that his run is very stiff. Like, he's very like, like, I was just like, is that how Charlie Cox runs? Did he, like, it made me think of in the Captain America movies, like, Chris Evans, I guess, has a very specific run that they could not get someone to do, like, a double to do his running for him because he has a very specific run. And so I was like, did Charlie Cox face the same problem because he has a very (laughs) stiff run? Like, his upper body is just, like, very, like, robotic. And You know what? Okay, okay, Marissa, fine. Yes, I will rewatch everything related to him playing Matt Murdock to to verify this. I will take on that burden. Thank you for putting that on my shoulders. You're welcome. It'll be so difficult to get through watching all of that because I just find him so unattractive. (sighs) Okay, I'm just, I'm gonna um, just get address the elephant in the room the reason tristan had no bitches was because of that fucking haircut oh my god you're not wrong it's really bad guys wait 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 wait. and that is why captain shakespeare is the true hero of this movie because he so true he gave tristan a makeover (laughs) okay but is this not okay this is this is my hot take tristan is the nerdy art student that Captain Shakespeare, acting as a fairy godmother, swaps out his like overalls covered in paint at, at, for a dress right before the prom, and then takes off her glasses. That's that's the plot. That's the plot with Tristan's transformation. Like I'll he literally just gets a makeover. Like, mm-mm, mm-mm, but mm-mm, he also no. learns how to wield a sword. Which, Which is, is inherently sexy. Like I, you, it's so attractive to see. It's attractive no matter a sword. what gender. Just everyone looks good wielding a sword and in a white puffy shirt with the with it like rolled up to the elbow. Oh, it the is, elbows! Oh, there's listen, nothing sluttier than a man's elbow or a woman's pi- elbow. There's nothing sluttier than elbows. Pirates are the most attractive. They're, they're so they. Speaking of pirates, speaking of pirates, let's talk about Captain Shakespeare and his crew. I want to actually uh, make a slight edit to your presentation of Captain Shakespeare in this makeover montage of Tristan being the quirky art school boy. Uh, I need you to know that Captain Shakespeare is the English teacher that helps all the queer kids out. Yeah, he really Mm -hmm. is. So I just need that to be stated. He's literally Captain Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, it's built in. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I distinctly remember when I watched this in the theater for the first time. During that monologue, they said Captain Shakespeare. And I was in middle school when this came out. So, like, I definitely knew who Shakespeare was. And so I just thought of William Shakespeare when they said Captain Shakespeare. But he has to explain the joke. And honestly, I think for most audiences, it would be this way. He has to explain 
the like shake spear, like like wielding a spear bit to everyone else because the only people that are thinking that are the people in his world. Everyone else in the audience is thinking about William Shakespeare. And yeah. I think that, honestly, I think that would amuse and delight Captain Shakespeare to know that none of us thought he was talking about shaking a spear at all. It's true. Also, this movie really does underscore the notion that every movie you will come across is better off with a makeover montage. I don't care what genre it is. I do not care what the plot is. It will be automatically improved with a makeover montage. When he first puts, like, essentially the the extensions in Christian, or <laughs> Christian, Tristan's hair, I don't know why, but he, have you guys have seen, what are you doing, Chelsea? I was seeing if you are going to say what I was going to say. That he looks like Armand from Interview with the Vampire? That's not what I was going to say. I was going to say that he looks like the human beast from Beauty and the Beast. Oh. Just less attractive. Or, well, no, he's more attractive than the hu- the human beast. Because the human beast in Beauty and the Beast, he, uh, he should have stayed furry. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's my hot take. He did this not look good as a so human. This off the rails. Oh, my God. Chelsea. Okay. I'm just going to throw out there that um, upon watching this movie for I don't even know how many times it's been, uh, I realized that I actually have a type, and it is long hair, brown eyes, little awkward, huge dork, but and slash nerd, but with a heart of gold. That is my type. Yeah, see, Marissa's out here looking for that BDE, big dork energy. <laughs> it's true. Oh, my God. You know, Marissa, uh, I must admit that that is also generally my type. Uh, brunette, awkward, dorky, weirdly passionate about the strangest things. Because I was thinking about other fictional characters that I have grown attached to. And I feel like they're all like different sides of like the same D20, if you will. Because <laughs> like I was like, OK, so, yeah, there's Tristan from Stardust. There's Spencer Reed from Criminal Minds. Again, long hair, brown eyes, lovable dork. There's also... Sorry I'm bringing this up again, but Eddie Munson from Stranger Things. <laughs> All right. I'll peace out. Uh, <laughs> All right. Bye, Chelsea. Oh, my God. Is this my podcast now? <laughs> I don't like this power. Chelsea, come back. I won't speak anymore of he who shall not be named. I knew it was coming up. I just knew it. I knew it because that's the first person I thought of when you said that. <sighs> Anywho. Yeah, um, my type is my type is pirate. I think. I, I yeah, like I like pirates a lot. You just need. Uh, you just you're like you just walk up to somebody that you have an interest in, and you're like, "Hello, do you know how to operate a boat?" <laughs> it's like how I have to ask people, "Do you know ma- Do you know any magic tricks?" Because you know Chelsea has. Yeah, this I had a I had a a dream, a prophecy, a, a premonition. <laughs> If you will, that Marissa, the love of Marissa's life was a magician. Uh, and and I know I'm right. So, you know, look, look, I look. have to ask any suitors if they 
are a magician, uh, if they know any magic tricks. And if the answer to either of those questions uh, is no, then my second question would be, are, are you willing to learn? Because if you want to be my sister's lover, you got to get with do a her card magic trick. tricks. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Spice Girls. Every single one of them. No, but if if you watch this movie and your favorite part is all the stuff that happens on the boat, Captain Shakespeare, his crew, and you haven't yet watched Our Flag Means Death, I don't know what you're doing with your life by depriving yourself of joy. Oh, my God. Because, no, 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 think about it, right? So Shakespeare and, right? Okay, so this was 2007, and I definitely think there's a take on this film and this kind of slightly effeminate captain where you say like they're clearly making fun of gay people i will point out that this movie won a glad award as apparently but what i think makes this so successful is that yes robert de niro is playing a slightly effeminate man but i don't read it as a performance that's meant to mock a group of people instead i read it as a man that is in a life that maybe he didn't pick. It's unclear. Like we don't have all that much background on this character. That's very much in like he, he likes what he does, but he also enjoys like to quote our flag means death, the finer things in life. And if you've seen our flag means death, both Ed and Steed embody different parts of it. Like I think Ed Steed and Captain Shakespeare would all hang out together and have a jolly good time. I now want a crossover between the 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 the, the, the you know lightning catcher crew in uh, Stardust and then the crew of the Revenge from Our Flag Means Death. I just think that that would just be like iconic. I know that the use of the word iconic is. It, it's overused, but this truly would be iconic. <laughs> I also think that Captain Shakespeare would probably be a lot of fun for someone that's exploring like gender and like toxic masculinity in particular or how under patriarchy masculinity is power. And mm-hmm. so therefore, the more masculine you are, the like more power you have, and which leads to like terrible violence and things like that because that's how you display your masculinity because it's very interesting that like the crew is honestly unbothered but like it's almost like Shakespeare has to keep being reminded to like these really like empty statements like he does not mean any of this all of these displays of masculinity are entirely a performance and it's absolutely ridiculous but like people are doing this in a very sincere way in reality and so Mm -hmm. i just think someone did anyone ever read a paper on captain shakespeare because i i think it was a missed opportunity if they didn't that's all i should have done that for my gender in pop culture class oh missed opportunity that's so sad i just want so many spinoffs from this movie like i want the spinoff where we get tristan's parents backstory is that because I want to see more Ben Barnes? Shut up. Um, <laughs> but I also would love to know more origins of Captain Shakespeare and how all of that came to be. I want to know how the princess got captured by the witch. I want to know how the witches, like, I want to know all about Michelle Pfeiffer. I, 
I just want to know all of it. And I think that's the devastating part of this movie is that there's simply not more. The one thing I really actually want to know, and I think if I read the book, I'd probably get the answer, is where does one acquire a Babylon candle? Because it's it's very clear that these are very hard to come by. Somebody, I think it's Ditchwater Sal that says, you know, it's black magic because she makes the comment that I don't I don't deal in that, which I think is bullshit. But <laughs> anyway, she doesn't have one or she doesn't want to give him one. And even the witches who are very clearly like magic royalty, like dark mistress level royalty in those witchy circles they were like, we don't have time to figure out the Babylon candle situation. You just have to go get the star. So yeah, I just, I want to know. I, those are the answers that I want. I want to know how the witches acquired what is essentially goth Versailles. Like (laughs) they're, they're, they're little like it's not even little. Their mansion is this. It's literally a goth version of Versailles. Like they have a hall of mirrors and everything. And I want to live there really, really badly. Just could you imagine me like frolicking in my princess It's probably dress? real cheap. The, all those glasses are broken now. Yeah. You can fix it up. Flip I'll it, look it up on I mean? Zillow. Amazing. You know, Chelsea, I actually, I don't know if you know this, but there's a Stardust wiki. Did you look up Babylon Candle for me? Of course I did. And wow. I'm so sorry, but there's really not much on it about how it comes into being. It gives the history of it in the book, like how he gets it in the book. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a part of that where I was like, ew, that's kind of icky. Yeah. And then how he gets it in the movie, and it, it talks about how it may have been inspired by a nursery rhyme called How Many Miles to Babylon, which goes uh, as it follows. How many miles to Babylon? Four score miles and ten. Can I get there by candlelight? There and back again. Yes, if your heels are nimble and light, you can get there by candlelight. But no further notes on how it's how it comes into being and why it's so rare. All right. Well, if anybody does have that answer, uh, I am most interested. So please write in. Hey, Neil, hit us up. I just want to know so much more about this story. That doesn't mean that I want to read it because I don't want the clash of tones. You know, I think I don't know. That's such a mood, Madison. I don't want to admit that I don't know how to read. I have an English degree. They'll take it back. Okay. Mark Strong, who plays Septimus in this movie, I want it noted that this was probably one of the first things that I can remember seeing him in. And because he plays an excellent antagonist, I don't really want to call him a villain. I I would say he's an antagonist. He plays such an excellent, like, cutthroat bad guy that any movie I see him in from from the time I saw this uh, uh, up through the present and probably through the future I just assume he's up to no good it doesn't matter (laughs) what the context of the movie is I think he was in the imitation game with Benedict Cumberbatch and Keira Knightley and he played he's like an MI6 guy and I was just like he's up to no good he's literally in the movie for five minutes and as far as I'm aware he was not up to no good I mean like maybe he was as part of MI6 but like that wasn't relevant to the plot um but i was like he's up to no good he's in the king's is always up to no good i was just about to say i was like isn't he in the kingsman movie 
Yep, and he I was is. like, he's up to no good. He's also in Kick-Ass. Is he up to no good in that movie? I would have to rewatch it. <laughs> I will let you know, though. I always refer to him as Septimus. Like, I always forget his name, the actor's name, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, I like Septimus. And usually, Ch- and Chelsea knows who I'm talking about when I <laughs> say Septimus. It's the joy of growing up with the same movies and references where you can just yeah. be like, hey, this movie, say a quote, and you just say the same quote at the same time. I also would love to get some background on, like, you know, like, who killed who in, in the brother situation. Mm-hmm. I feel like Septimus killed many of them. I just he just has that vibe, you know? Oh, for sure. But like two things in the film that I just find hilarious. So first, in the very first scene where there's the four living sons, and basically the king's like secundus, go to the window. And he walks over and then he tells him to like look out and then he's like, look up, and then he eyes Septimus and Septimus gets it, like, oh, I'm gonna go kill my brother. He just walks over to the window and pushes him out. But the hilarious part that it's like if you blink, you miss it, is that Tertius walks over to the window and is like gonna try and do it to Septimus, but Septimus just like eyes him and he's like, Oh, I like I wasn't really gonna push you out the window, like incredible. Incredible comedy. The other thing that's really funny is and that I love is that okay, Septimus's big plan is he's gonna poison Tertius and Primus, and then he'll just take his time to find the stone. Like that's that's the plan. But then Primus drinks out of the wrong cup, so the bishop ends up dying. But when he realizes in that moment when the bishop dies that his plan has failed and like one of his brothers is still going to live, instead of just getting mad, he just pranks his brother. Like he literally just pretends to die and then his brother just thinks he gets to be king and then he just laughs his ass off. And I'm like, if that is not sibling culture, (laughs) like I'm going to try and assassinate you, but it doesn't work. So I'm just going to make fun of you for thinking that you were like on top for a second. Yeah, iconic. I literally in my notes during that scene said siblings gonna sibling. (laughs) It doesn't it doesn't matter whether you are playing a silly game or trying to murder one another. That's how siblings work. That's the most based like sibling actions. Tried to kill you. (laughs) Haha, didn't work. LOL. Something that I noted, I and I never noticed this before. And I don't know why I zoned in on it this rewatch. But um, so, you know, at the very beginning of the movie, like, they have the whole thing with the snowdrop, like, the mm-hmm. flower that Una gives to Dustin, and she says that it will bring him luck. And then when Tristan goes to Victoria's initially, he has a bouquet of snowdrops. And I was like, oh, my God, his dad probably told him snowdrops will bring you luck and so he was like okay i'll bring her snowdrops and also because i am a lover of flower language i did look up like the symbolic meaning of snowdrops they symbolize new beginnings hope rebirth and the ability to overcome challenges oh also, little side note, snowdrops are the uh, birth flower of January. So that is my birth flower. That was really cute. I'm trying to remember what my birth flower is. I can't remember. That's fine, though. That's adorable. I did look up, Chelsea, your birth flower is tulips. <gasps> I Tulips are my favorite because they're like little cups. They're little cups. 
I love that so much. Everybody actually has two birth flowers. So your two are, you have tulips and daisies. Those mm-hmm. are the April birth flowers. January is snowdrops and carnations. Oh. And then July is water lilies and larkspur. I don't entirely know what larkspur looks like. I don't mind. It's um, it's like a tall, from what I remember, it's like a tall stalk with several small flowers all together. Think um, sort of like a sort of like a hyacinth vibe sort of like a snapdragon vibe with how they're all clustered like that i love snapdragons they symbolize deceit (gasps) that's why they're my favorite (laughs) not my favorite are cow lilies i did a uh last year for my final in one of my classes, I had to like pitch an idea, f- like a, a production of a play. So I did the importance of being earnest. And I said that I wanted to incorporate flower language into the set design and that I wanted uh, snapdragons to be everywhere because snapdragons symbolize deceit. And that Amazing. is what uh, Jack slash Ernest does in the importance of being earnest. He just like deceives everybody. What a Gemini. Oh my God. <laughs> Fun whoopsie fact. I don't know if either of you noticed this. I noticed this a long time ago, and now every time I watch it, it just makes me giggle. But in the scene after Yvain and Tristan have escaped and then get captured by Captain Shakespeare's crew, where Septimus has arrived at the, like, now disappeared inn to find his brother in just a standalone bathtub, and then Bernard, the kid that was turned into a goat and then a woman and is now a man again, um, he... <laughs> is holding a knife to Bernard. And in the first few shots, the knife stays consistent. It's like just in front of his of Bernard's ear when you're looking at it sideways and from, they do two shots. There's one where it's like a wide shot so you can see both Septimus and Bernard. Then there's more of a close-up of just Bernard's face. So in the first few like back and forth, the knife stays relatively the same, right? But then it's clear that they used different takes because the wide shot where you can see both of them, the knife is way behind his ear. And then in the close up, it's way up on his cheekbone. And it makes me laugh every time because I just can't unsee it. And I apologize if I've ruined that scene for anyone. But it's honestly, it's not like that intense or anything. So I just I love that scene because it just makes me giggle. It it makes me giggle every time I watch it because all I can see is the knife moving. I also, uh, other things I want to see, I think Bernard needs to have like a tell-all book about working for Septimus. (laughs) Like, and also just like, you know, he he got turned into a goat and then he got, you know, transformed into a woman. And then like, and then he was, you know, and then he went back to his normal self and then he was working for Septimus and just like he... There was a, a, a lot going on for that dude. I also wrote down, I was like, you know, the the normal, quote unquote normal people that live in these fantasy worlds. Like, is this just something that they're like, oh, yeah, that's something that could possibly happen to me at some point. I get turned into a goat by it a It makes you wonder if they have some kind of like, you know, liability or like, you know, comprehensive coverage sort of insurance of like, oh no, I now, you know, eat sheet metal because I was a goat. 
and it you know it's ruining my dental work and it's like well unfortunately um you opted out of that part of your policy so we can't cover that uh we can put that in moving forward in the event that it does happen again but unfortunately for this situation we cannot cover that i think that would be really funny there i know there's a book by patrick ness i've never read it it's called the rest of us just live here and it's supposed to be following a group of people that like live in a world with superheroes but like they are not the superheroes so the focus of the story is how all of the superhero shenanigans affects these people's lives i don't know if it's any good i've never read it but that's the concept for this book and i've always thought that that's great and so it would be similar to this like the people in the background of these stories that like aren't on the adventure but the adventure is impacting their life Hmm. see okay 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 here's the thing that is actually one of my biggest gripes this is so stupid that's one of my biggest gripes with the marvel movies where you have the um plot arc of essentially you know new york is getting destroyed constantly in those movies but you have such significant infrastructure damage due to these big superhero super villain fights and then stark industries comes in and gets what i imagine would be like billions of dollars in government contracts to rebuild all of this destroyed infrastructure that Tony Stark uh, likely destroyed himself. I'm sorry. Now I'm just getting into it. But like the whole Ultron thing, that was just Tony Stark. And you want to give him billions of dollars in government funds, which is taxpayer money. And he's already a bajillionaire to rebuild infrastructure that he and his posse destroyed. Have you seen like people created like Twitter accounts that are supposed to be like people who live in the Marvel universe, like just normal people? (laughs) So they'll be like, oh, my God, I saw Thor on the subway today. (laughs) And then it's like, and it's like, oh, these stupid alien attacks. If I'm late for work again, I'm going to get fired. (laughs) I know, right? It's like, God damn it. Captain America's shield got lodged in my windshield. I'm going to have to pay $500 for Safe Light to come out and replace this shit. I love when people make like in universe like Twitter accounts. It's just so funny. It's like, so and then good. also like they're the people that created like Twitter accounts for the founding fathers, like especially when like Hamilton got really popular. <laughs> oh my God. No. And it was just like, it was unhinged. Oh my God. No, I also really like the Twitter accounts that are counting down to start. Or like, there's one. Okay, so there's two that i'm gonna point out one is a twitter account that's tracking when hosier is gonna release his next album unreal unearth and it's like has this been released yet no but my favorite one is has henry kissinger died unfortunately not yet thanks for the daily update has henry kissinger died yet twitter yeah the only ones that i see are like the counting or like has taylor swift released like insert album that needs to be re-recorded here mm. i think the one that like, i see most now often to release on july 7th 2023 listen the second that taylor nation went live on may 5th i was just like oh she's announcing speak now taylor's version i'm so sorry chelsea i you it like, i mean at this point you should know that there's no escape from T-Swizzle. You no, know? it's a cult, and we're in it. Yeah. Um, 
and you're in it by proxy. Does it make you feel better, Chelsea, to know that uh, that she's got what is essentially boy genius with her, at least for the last three nights? You know what would make me feel better? If we determine whether or not this is a rom-com. <laughs> Perfect. I'm so glad you asked. Um, I th- This one actually did kind of surprise me um, with how much I felt it kind of met the criteria. But what's what's the criteria, Chelsea? Well, our first question of three questions that we have to ask to determine whether or not something is or is not a rom-com is, do they date? And so if we take this at face value, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But even for films that are not fantasy oriented, what we mean by do they date is are there moments in which we see whatever pairing connecting on an emotional level? And I would say most definitely that we do, especially once we get to the pirate ship. I think a lot of it happens there. We have her encouraging him in the in the brig. They're having a conversation. He's trying to comfort her. She's comforting him. Then there's the montage of them on the ship where they're learning to waltz and, you know, laughing and giggling together. And then even on the walk uh, after they leave the ship and they're walking and they're they're like teasing and flirting each other. She's like, what do stars do? And he's like, attract trouble? Like, and then they giggle and then they, you know, and then he throws her into a bush to protect her. But really, it's just a guise to get close to her. <laughs> Look, if you can't find a way to fall in love with a man who chains you to a tree and you have to be saved by a unicorn... I don't know what love is if it's not that. Nothing says romance like the gift of a a kidnapped, injured woman. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Honestly, 10 10 out of 10 for Evade for like literally calling out the red flag. (laughs) Like, how is this romance? Yeah, she's like, even with rose-colored glasses, those flags be bright red. Uh... But yeah, they date. Yeah, so I would say that they date. Did we laugh? I oh, think hell we yes. already established that. <laughs> there are so many different points of humor in this as we go along. Look, not to make a pun, but I do have to say that one of my favorite like cheeky moments is when Michelle Pfeiffer eats the last part of the last star's heart and you know everything kind of shifts back into a more um aesthetically pleasing form for her and she like turns around and looks at her ass and she's like hell yeah that's my ass that was so funny and then her sisters are just like Ugh, like rolling their eyes yeah yeah it's like oh, he fucking would little side tangent i always thought that the one sister was the actor that played drusilla on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but that is not her. And I only realized that this rewatch, <laughs> that they were not the same actor. <laughs> that is not Juliet Lando. I know, it's not. They have similar face structures and like the big eyes, you know? I never looked it up, but the star that got killed 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I want to know who that is because I always think that she looks familiar. I just remember she's a redhead and there's many redheads in the world. At least seven. I think that's how many I personally know. I think that even though 
like like we've said at at its heart this movie could has the potential to be incredibly dark it's so fucking funny it has no right to be as funny as it is so the last question that that brings us to is is love in the driver's seat and this is where i feel like it gets a pass but it's a pass in a very interesting way this is like when teachers share responses to students work and it's like they're technically right but that's definitely not what i was looking for yes Right. So the the journey is begun with him wanting to win the love of this other woman. Right. And mm-hmm. so that's the goal. So, yes, love is in the driver's seat. That's what propels Tristan to go over the wall and find the star and is what is continuing to motivate him to bring the star back. Like, that's what his whole journey is about. But somewhere along the way, he seems to fall in love with Vane. And so then it becomes keeping her alive, And I guess. And that's what, you know, has him going back over the wall to find her because she's now in danger. There's a witch trying to cut out her heart. And the witch actually has her this time. So, like, it's just not as straightforward as I think some stories are. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, I still don't think I would classify this as a romantic comedy. I would classify this first as fantasy. That would be the number one genre. Because I think there are so many other plots that don't have anything to do with the romance plot line. The, the prince's quest, the witch's quest, none of that has, that has to do with Yvaine, sure, but it doesn't have to do with romance. They are driven by power and youth. Like, you know. Yeah, I think that this movie could be considered a romantic comedy in the same way that Princess Bride could be considered a romantic comedy. It's romance driven by character intention and motivation it's hilarious and you see a deepening relation romantic relationship between primary characters you know what it's a rom-com chelsea it counts it's a rom-com but no what i'm saying is i think for the first time we're in brand new territory for why i think maybe it technically isn't one but our the way we've structured our criteria is looking at stories from like what is motivating the plot being the most important thing is that romance, I, I guess, in this case. But comedy is kind of like this lackluster question that we ask. We're just basically like, is it funny? Are there attempts at humor? Which there are. But I still don't think those two things in and of themselves make a romantic comedy. So this is, I'm just saying it's really interesting because we've entered time where I think it, it checks all those boxes. So I think we have to say it is one. And yet I still feel like it isn't. I felt like in like if we were in a fantasy world, like we lived in a fantasy world where these things are things that happen on like the regular, like witches, people turn into goats, king, princes on a quest to figure out if they're going to be the king. Like to me, if we lived in that type of universe, this would be a romantic comedy in that universe Mm, that's okay that's fair that's really interesting 
Because it wouldn't be considered fantasy because that's just the well, way the world is. It's fantasy, but also there's a really like high stakes adventure portion to it that is so important to the story. This is a quest for, it's a quest in the name of love, right? Like I think what I'm saying is just, this story is more complicated than saying it's a romantic comedy. And I know we all know this. And obviously we've talked about how our romantic comedy checklist is, you know, and genre itself is very fluid. They're marketing categories, if nothing else. It's just to be able to explain to you the feel of a movie before you even explain the plot of a movie. Mm -hmm. Right? So I don't know. I, again, I think this passes by our criteria. I'm just pointing out maybe our criteria has some holes in it. I would agree. I think I think maybe it just it requires a tiered approach uh, when you reach more complex movies like this. Um, because I think at the end of the day, this is a quest driven movie. And I don't know. I guess my my biggest issue with it in that way is the fantasy being in the forefront, the quest being in the forefront. But I what I keep getting stuck on is more character motivation through it all because like you said before Tristan started out with this motivation driven by trying to gain somebody's affection. So you have that element, which is very romantic, plot-driven-esque. And then the shift happens when he falls in love with what he was trying to obtain for his you know, previous beloved. That man really just jumps from woman to woman uh <laughs> but i guess that's my biggest thing is if we're taking him as our primary character as our main character and looking purely at his motivation and his actions this is so romantic comedy it's everyone else that gets added in i think if you removed the threat of the witches like the degree that it's presented in and if you remove the power struggle for the monarchy, it would be a lot more cut and dry. All right. All right. I mean, look, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. I'm just trying my best to make sure we're looking at this from the right perspective or multiple angles. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think I think it's just it's so strange to have to. It's like, because in our checklist, the one that actually gave me the trouble wasn't the third question, which it mm -hmm. usually is. I, I was like, yeah, I mean, like, I see it. It was the comedy question, because if, if I, the way I would, I would market this at people, I would say it's a, it's a romantic fantasy comedy. Mm, like, okay. because comedy. I was going to say the same thing. Tonal, tonally, this is not a comedy. 
Yes, yeah. there are funny moments, but I would not personally classify this as a comedy. I think that sets a very specific expectation that I don't think this movie would deliver on. Yes, this movie is funny, but I think if, you, if you're going to watch this movie, you're watching it for the romance, for the fantasy. Like that is at the forefront and the comedy is almost like a garnish on the plate. A counter, would you potentially accept more of a dark comedy lens? Because a lot of this, I mean, like like you were talking about, you know, with the window scene where uh, Septimus murders his brother, Tertius is like, eh, maybe. And then you have, you know, the witches also incredibly comedic, doing terrible things. If you reclassify the comedy to present more as like dark comedy does that change the comedic lens it definitely changes the comedic lens but again i still don't think that the comedy whether it be slapstick dark whatever that flavor of comedy may be i don't think it's present in the foreground enough mm-hmm. it's like dressing it's not it's not the actual meal does that make sense it, yeah. it's I want it there, believe me. It's adding to it, but it's not the point of it. Yeah. Another part of it, too, is I feel like... Let me ask you this. Would your perception of the romance change in the absence of the comedy if this was almost like purely dramatically driven does the presentation of the romance change a lot? Because there's a lot of, I think part of the growth between the characters happens in, you know, light, fun, flirty banter kind of type. So if you take that out, like you could keep elements of I, the I, I see what you're scene. trying to say, Madison. But I, what I'm trying to say is I, this movie is complete the way it is. All we're trying to do in this moment is to classify the film. Like, where does it fit on the shelf with all of the other movies in the world? Like, what categories do you put it under? And if, if you put on it no under shelf. one... What? It fits on no shelf. No, I think it does fit on a shelf. But, like, it's like... if it, It's like, okay. If you've ever been a person that's looking for... And, Madison, you and I, you're looking for some queer rom-coms right and somebody has a book tagged as lgbtqia and then you read the book and you're like where was the what is it yeah where are the losgibities you know what i mean like where where is it right because it's like this minor character that's mentioned and yet somebody felt the need to tag the entire book as but the tag isn't specific enough to say that like like it's a side character or a minor character right so that's what i'm saying i think if you present this movie as a comedy i don't know that it delivers in the way that you would want it to and someone that's not going to be interested in the other elements of this movie that are more prominent right i think they mm -hmm. would be disappointed so I'm not trying to strip away the comedy. I'm not trying to classify the comedy. It is dark comedy. But what I'm saying is when we're trying to say, is this or is this not a romantic comedy? Does it fit under that label? Does it deserve mm -hmm. 
to be tagged that way in our filing system for people to happen upon. The yeah. part that's giving me pause for once isn't whether or not romance is propelling the plot forward. It's the comedy element of it. And so what I've determined is I do think this movie passes our series of like checks, but I think that our comedy question might not be specific enough. Mm. It's the same way that our, our romance question is very specific because it's not just does the movie have romance in it. It's is romance driving the plot because in mm -hmm. a romantic comedy, romance has to drive the plot. Our comedy question is just, is there comedy? Did we laugh? I don't mm -hmm. think that's specific enough because I think plenty of things you could say are comedic. Like they have so funny moments. Does in, in that instance, is the comedy also, I guess... Look, I, I'm not asking us to solve this right now. The listeners don't <laughs> want to hear this. I'm just putting forth that, look, like we can always be improving. And this is one area where I think up until this moment, we've been very short-sighted. All I'm going to say is romantic comedy or not a romantic comedy. I think we can all agree that Yvain and Tristan's romance brings a whole new meaning to you are the light of my life. That was disgusting. Well, Marissa, you could say that it was written in the stars. Oh, my God. I hate you, too. <laughs> <laughs> or I that, you like know, like, like, you know, when when you enter and someone lights up when they see you. <laughs> oh, yeah. They really light up a room. Mm hmm. Uh, and for the second time this episode, I say goodbye. OK, bye. It's just the she's a sparkle in his eye, you know yeah yeah literally at the very end like when they when they like you know go back into the heavens and become stars i was like it's like ray and evangeline from princess and the frog <laughs> although princess the and the frog came so out hard. the princess and the frog came out two years after this movie so <laughs> inspiration i think so that is the greatest love story that disney has ever told is ray and evangeline a firefly and a star. A Cajun firefly at that. Yeah. Yes. From the bayou. Yeah, no, uh, that's perhaps why Tiana is my favorite uh, Disney princess. Tiana is one of the best. She truly is. Chelsea, do you have a favorite Disney princess or heroine in general? I really like Vanellope from Wreck-It Ralph. Oh my god. Who gets to be an honorary choice. princess in the sequel? Yes. I'm a princess too. <laughs> She's just like really fun. Um, I think Brave gets a lot of hate for some reason. And like, and, okay, I want to be clear about this. It's not my favorite movie for a number of reasons, but I like it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not one that I want to sit down and watch all the time, but like, I do enjoy the story. And it's so funny because I've heard so many times people completely, they either forget it altogether, but like, this is like one of the movies in which the princess didn't need, like the whole point. And it wasn't just that she didn't need a prince or she didn't need to be in a relationship, but like it, the film was actually like, she was like, uh, I am a strong woman, hear me roar. 
I'll shoot for my own hand. Exactly. It's going to inspire me to say, use really bad accents. That was a southern accent, Madison. I know. I I got my own hand. I'll let me slide into it. Hold on. <clears throat> okay, hold on. And I'll be shooting for me on hand. <laughs> she doesn't say me. I literally if- just watched this movie because I wrote a paper about it for my gender and pop culture class. <laughs> but but Marissa, if you could change your fate, would you? I mean, I don't want to turn my ma into a bear. <laughs> my ma's a bear. And I'll be shooting for me on. <laughs> She doesn't say me. I'll be shooting for my own hand. I am Merida, firstborn of Clan Donbroch, and I'll be shooting for my own hand. That was terrible. I'm so sorry, Scotland. I think all of us are just very bad at at these accents, and we should just. We should what just do put you mean? That was I. I did such a great job of saying I'll be shooting for my own hand. I'm just going to apologize to all of Scotland right now. We're never you deserve be better. True. Listen, Scotland, like right now, they're like roasting now King Charles and I- I'm living for it. So. Oh my God. I can't even, I can't even begin to discuss or think about that. Um, I, I really didn't think he was ever going to become king. I seriously thought he was going to be dead before that. <laughs> I thought he was going <laughs> to die before before Lizzie, to be honest. I know, right? Like, is this, is this, can we, can we get in trouble for saying, you know. I was no, just about fine. to ask. I was like, is, is, are like, is the royal family going to come after us? Like, for saying all this? <laughs> they don't <laughs> Who, sponsor gonna us. Who's going to tell him? I, Camilla. Team Harry and Meghan forever. Ugh, Camilla. Okay. Chelsea. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Is it even worth it to run through the gamut of, like, our watchability score for this? I mean, look, I'm pretty sure that we're all in agreement that this is a five. Yeah. This is... It's a five. Best coffee coffee in town is right downstairs. They have oat milk or any other plant-based dairy alternative that you could want at no extra cost so that you can enjoy your beverage and not have the shits afterward. <laughs> it's incredible. And, uh, you know, at no extra cost to you. They also have a really great tea selection for those who don't like coffee. I said and beverage. I didn't say coffee. Okay. Yeah, they got well, that hocho, too. They got everything. Ooh. Yeah. Love some hocho. Love hocho. I need you both to stop. It is hot chocolate. Please stop trying to shorten it. <laughs> Chelsea's Mm, like stop trying to make Hocho happen it's not gonna happen there are so many like weird abbreviations for things that they like like I feel physically upset like I'm like I have a reaction to hearing it that is one of them Marissa how did you come across uh, that abbreviation of hot chocolate don't they say it in Gilmore Girls they might. I can't remember where I came across I'm it. I'm pretty sure there is an episode where Lorelai and Rory are like getting hot chocolate, and then like Lorelai is like, "Mmm, good hocho," and then Rory's like, "Ew, don't say that. It's cutesy," or something like that. That I have so watched perfect. Gilmore Girls way too many times. <laughs> I Absolutely. mean, hashtag same. Yeah, it's I our it's it our on... burden as white women to uh, be able to quote it like some people quote the Bible. 
So Gilmore Girls is my Bible. <laughs> oh my god, I need that in like the live, laugh, love font <laughs> on a really ugly pink t-shirt. Literally, like Gilmore Girls, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Avatar the Last Airbender are like my holy trinity. Oh my god. You just get a Comfort Colors t-shirt with all of that worked into one. You'll be fine. And then when I want to be traumatized, I watch Stranger Things. Um, When I want to be... What do I watch when I want to be traumatized? What a good question. Thank you for asking. Uh, Sometimes I rewatch Made on Netflix. It's like a limited short run series. Mm. Whenever I want to feel sad, just watch that. I also have a show that is my like my other comfort shows aren't working because I'm like really big sad and that's Fruits Basket. And it's weird because there's so much fucking trauma in that show. But I'm just like, I love it. You got this adorable woman who just like changes all these people's lives like one person at a time. And then, you know, she falls in love with the cat man, you know. And out of context, that sounds r- ridiculous. I love it. I just rewatch uh, the cooler episode of season two of uh, New Girl over and over again when I feel sad. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, season four, episode 17, Spider Hunt, Spider is Hunt. my favorite New Girl episode solely for the part where Nick and Jess are having two different conversations where Nick thinks that they are talking about a popcorn machine and And Jess thinks they're talking about Cece. Specific, yeah. Yep. Yep. And specifically, at one point, Cece's vagina. Like... (laughs) That is just some of the most clever miscommunication television that I have ever seen because it was for each of the characters. It is so genuine that that would happen. It's uh, it's so good. Okay. Which is why writers deserve a livable wage just to bring it full circle. Look at us bringing that back up. This podcast is sponsored by the WGA strike. We're giving them money. <laughs> We're giving them money. It's, this podcast is sponsored by our support of the WGA. And there we go. Right. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, we'll uh, update you guys on our preview Instagram post for this episode. If it's still going on. I, I hope it's not go still going on. But, you know, my I'm going to keep my expectations low. <laughs> Well, Madison, this concludes all of the material, all of the discussions, all of the laughs, if you will, for season two. Oh, my gosh. What an end of an era. You could say that we're kind of like exiting a fearless era, you know? It's fearless. (laughs) Chelsea just wants us to go away. Chelsea, she's holding worry. up the she's holding up the please go away security <laughs> sign that I saw earlier. And an axe. Where did you get that? Is that is that the fire axe that we're supposed to use to chop our way out of this building <laughs> if it's on fire? 
Oh my God, Chelsea. I thought, well, you know, first we got to hack out of the boxes, the cardboard boxes, and then out of the building. Yeah, Chelsea, I want to talk to the network about why uh, the guest box is so much nicer than our boxes. It's so that the guest doesn't, you know, whistle blow their operation. Mm, That makes sense. Okay. I got that nice bottled water, you know, got smart water. Oh, oh, damn. Shit. Electrolytes. And then there's like one pillow. You get a pillow? What the hell? <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, whatever. Chelsea, I look going into season three. All I hope is that uh, you will speak then as you speak now. And they said, speak now. And I hope you never speak again. <laughs> We are going to be absolute menaces to you on July 7th. I will go radio silent on July 7th. I might never agree to allow you to be a guest again, Marissa, because somehow (laughs) this is worse when you're here. (laughs) You love me too much to not bring me back. I'm going to try and find other guests next time. Dang. You know, I have a fan base. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I will I will rally all two of them together and we will defeat you. Actually, yeah, speaking of your fan base, Marissa, uh, if you'd like people to find you on the internet, not in person, uh, where where can they do that? How can they hunt you down on the internet? Oh, thank you so much for asking. So I have a, a TikTok. If you'd like to see really random shit that makes absolutely no sense, um, you can find me on TikTok uh, at Marissa underscore C-I-C-C 97. Um, I also just recently started a new TikTok with uh, a friend of mine and friend of yours, Amanda. A friend of the pod, Amanda. Uh, You can find us at This is a State of Ace. We're not Swifties. Um, nope. <laughs> um, and then you can find me on Instagram if you want to see, again, just really random, cringy shit at Marissa underscore CICC 97. Yeah. Marissa makes prime content. Uh, I think it's terrible quality three, content. <laughs> look, moving into season three, uh, she'll be our social media director on TikTok. She That's has a lot of responsibility. Yeah, actually, and she's working for free because of all the time she's mentioned Taylor Swift on my podcast. Yeah, I oh, know. Yeah, I have to. I owe Chelsea a dollar every time I say Taylor Swift's name. It's the Swift jar. The Swift <laughs> is jar. it like the douchebag jar? Yeah. Yes. Oh my god, I love it. I would have to get a second job to fund that jar. Oh yeah, um, no, I'm I'm in crippling debt. Aren't we all? <laughs> oh my god. Madison, what can uh listeners expect in this coming season? Oh my god. Three. Ooh, so I'm getting store. my own little sneak peek. Yeah. Before anyone else. I feel so special. Oh. <laughs> so next season, uh, we are going to be 
starting out with a pretty new movie that came out this year with Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher. I'm not going to say anything else about it. You guys can figure that out. Uh, but we're we're going to get into some really good films that we just haven't been able to tackle yet. Uh, usually it's because we've both seen it and we have to find somebody who hasn't. I think one that people should be really excited about is... What is the Matthew McConaughey movie called? Oh, got it. Um, we're going to get to watch How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, which everybody that I tell about our podcast is like, why have you not covered this yet? And I'm like, I have to find somebody who hasn't seen it. And Chelsea managed to find that one person. He lives in a cave. At least that's what I that's what I assumed. I don't want to speak for him and identify his living space. But yeah, so they have that to look forward to. I'm not trying to figure out who that could be. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like trying to think of someone I know that Chelsea knows who's like a recluse or something. Oh, no, I don't think they're a recluse. This person isn't a recluse. No, he's just just never seen seen it. He's just never seen the movie. Oh, I just took that literally. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, also, um, next season's gonna be really interesting because we're gonna have male guests on. <laughs> More than one. More than one. Like... More than one. I know. I know. We're uh, we're bringing some some wild testosterone on the pod. I'm a little nervy about that. You just make it clear that you two are in charge that this is an estrogen run program oh you have no fear i feel like both of these men already know this oh i I mean honest any men you know are are well aware of that fact so (laughs) but yeah i'm just i'm really excited for next season i think we're gonna cover some really great movies i think that chelsea's gonna hate so many of them i'm so excited you don't even know there'll be some some changes some exciting upgrades to certain things that oh you guys finally getting pillows in your boxes no we we don't have the budget for that we wish you know cisco got her own box too and she's not even like recording anything and her box was better than mine cisco is my cat for those of you who don't know (laughs) I I mean, we do have in our contract that any studio cat does get the best accommodations. I mean, so. as it should. Yeah. Madison, I know you didn't want to say the name of the movie, but I actually think we're legally required to because this will be the last episode they listen to before the new episode. <gasps> oh, that's so true. Okay, it's called Your Place or Mine. So watch that before. I think it's on Netflix. Sorry if you hate Netflix. You probably should, but... Honestly, it's so hard to find any kind of corporate entity that you don't hate in this day and age. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. Except for eating. Alrighty, guys. Well, this has been stellar. Get it? Stellar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because of stars. Yeah. 
you know, remember how I said you don't have to explain your jokes? Like, <laughs> I, I understand them. Why didn't you laugh? I'm laughing on the inside. Okay. Not gonna lie, I was trying to think of another pun to say while you said that. <laughs> well, Marissa, um, thank you for bringing your star power to this episode. I've really appreciated having you on and encouraging all of my worst behaviors. It was it was a fun time, ruining everything. <laughs> a marvelous time, ruining everything, really. Well, once again, we are Love It for a Screening. We will be back on the first Wednesday of August 2023. That's August 2nd. We'll be talking about all the rom-coms you love love to hate and everything in between so until next time bye